theyeshiva.net. Our theme today is confronting your deepest fears. And as a text, I'm going to use a posik in Parshas Ekev, Dvarim chapter 8, Dvarim Perik Ches, Deuteronomy 8. And let's recall the context. Moshe Rabbeinu is talking to the Jewish people here during the last weeks of his life, beginning with Parshas Dvarim, all till the end, almost the end of this Sefer. Moshe is giving and presenting his final will and testament to the Jewish people during the last weeks of his sojourn here on planet Earth. And in Parshas Ekev, he speaks to them, communicating very vulnerable, emotional, powerful, and potent words. And he speaks about their journey. And I'm going to ask you to take a look at Ekev Perik Ches Pasek Yudalet. Moshe is worrying. He's expressing concern about the fact that sometimes blessings, prosperity, cause people to take their blessings for granted. When we don't have, we appreciate, we thirst, we yearn, and we're grateful for what we have. But sometimes when people build up their lives and they're blessed with so many good things and there is so much prosperity, as he says, you will eat and you will be satiated and you will have beautiful homes to live in and you will have lots of cattle and lots of sheep and you'll have lots of silver and lots of gold. And what happens is you can become arrogant. And he says, take a look in Pasuk Yedalad, your heart can become haughty and you may forget your God. You may forget that Hashem has taken you out of the land of Egypt, has really emancipated you from a house of subjugation and slavery. You will forget your humble past. You will forget that you were once a slave, that you were once subjugated and oppressed. And be grateful for your freedom and don't take it for granted and remain humble and be thankful for it. And then he continues, take a look. Here Moshe, in a unique posik, every posik is unique, but this is also unique, describes the journey in the desert that they have traversed for 40 years. So he says it, I translate. He leads you through Midbar HaGadol, through a great desert, large desert, a Gadol, huge, Vahanoira, an awesome one, a frightening one, a fearful one, right? From the word Yira, Noiritz, it's awesome. It's a place of Nachash, a place of snakes, a place of Saraf, of fiery serpents, a place of Akrov. The desert was filled with snakes, fiery serpents, and scorpions, and a place of Tzimoyen Asha'en Mayim, a place of thirst where there was no water. This is an arid, barren, infertile desert, no wellsprings, no rivers, no rain, and therefore it's naturally a place of thirst without water. And yet... Hashem brings forth water for you from the rock of flint, Mitzurah Chalamash. And he continues, he fed you manna in this wilderness. And Moshe is worried at the end in Pasuk Ches, he says, Pasuk Yudzayin, Vamartabil Vavecha, Koichi Vaitzim Yadayasaliya You might say to your heart, my strength and the might of my hand, 
made me all this wealth. All this valor, all this glory came from my own vigor, my own prowess, my own talent. Says Moshe, v'zacharta, esadinoi alehecha, ki hu hanoisim l'chakoyach, lasas chayelam anhokim es briser, shenishbala v'secha kayem azah. It's at these moments, it's so important to remember Hashem, your God, it was He who gave you the strength to make wealth in order to establish His covenant that He swore to your fathers, to your forefathers on this very day. Interesting to note Moshe Rabbeinu's concern that the Jews make, just give all the credit to themselves. It's my power, my talent, my creativity, my strength that is responsible for all my affluence. But there's something else that we learn from here. And that is the need for creativity. Because if Moshe was encouraging the Jewish people just to be idle, to be passive, and just to be conduits for the divine flow without really doing anything, then nobody in their right mind can even entertain the thought that it's koichi v'aitzam yadi asali asa that it's my might and my prowess and my looks or my brains and my uh, contributions that have created all of these blessings. Because I know that I've done nothing. We see from his very words, the perspective of Torah, that the Rebbeinu Shalom wants and yearns for human creativity. He wants us to be able to use our kayach to utilize all of our gifts, all of our talents, all of our resources, everything that we have, in order to be able to create a beautiful world and to create a beautiful life physically and spiritually and materially and emotionally. Yet, when we do that, there is the problem and the concern, the caution, the fear, that I may give myself the all, all the credit and say, it's koichi v'etzim yadi. If I wouldn't, if Torah wouldn't want me to use my strength and my power, how can I come to say that? The fact that I can come to say that is because the Rebbeinu Shalom Hashem wants people to maximize all their potentials, to be creators in life, not just passive victims and recipients. The expression of a Gemara Maseches Shabbos one nineteen, when we say Vayichulu Friday night, it's like you become a shutif. A partner to Hashem in the work of repairing the world, fixing the world. Yet, I have to remember that all my talents and all my resources and all my creativity and all my strength are essentially a gift from above. And that my main, my greatest contribution is to open myself up to be a conduit, that all my energies and all my prowess and all my wisdom and all my talents and everything you and I have and own ultimately are a manifestation of the divine gift and the divine energy that flows through my creativity and through my strength and through my contributions and through my prowess. But let's focus on how he describes the desert, this journey through the desert where Hashem took you through this desert. And this is, of course, the prerequisite to enter into the promised land which is going to be Eretz Toivo Rechava, the broad and beautiful land that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to talk about soon, about how the Jews are going to enter into that land and they should not they should not be dominated by fear. He spoke about it earlier, he speaks, speaks about it later. So he says, again in Posik Tasvav, right? He leads you through Midbar HaGadl. I want to focus now on each word. He leads you through a desert which is Gadl, it's huge. Noyre, it's fearful, it's awesome. 
Nachash, snakes, sarav, fiery serpents, akrav, scorpions, in a place of thirst where there's no water. Those are his descriptions of the desert. Now the Jews knew where they were. <laughs> they have been traveling this desert for 40 years. There were those who were very young when they left Egypt, till 20, not so young, they may have been a little under 20, so they're still here. Those who were born later, those who were babies, but they have been around in this desert for a long time, four decades. But Moshe is extremely descriptive about the uniqueness of this desert. First of all, he tells them it's great, it's big. Second, it's frightening, it's fearful, it's awesome, Noira. Third, there's snakes. That's not enough. There are also fiery serpents, sorrow. Not enough. There are scorpions. And if you didn't get the point yet, there's no water. Naturally, people are thirsty here. Hydrated. Because it's a desert. And each expression is indispensable and essential to Moshe Rabbeinu's message. And it's these, this midbar that you have traveled, that God led you through as a preparation to come into the Holy Land. Why is Moshe Rabbeinu sharing all these details about the midbar, about the desert? Why is it so important? Why is it so critical for the Jews to know this about the midbar and this about the desert? It's because this is really a reflection of much of the journey of life. We know the Baal Shem Tev taught that the 48 journeys of the Jews in the desert are a microcosm and a reflection of everybody's life. Each of our lives is a mirror of those journeys of the Jewish people through the desert. And in fact, history repeats itself. Just like they traveled the desert and then they would go into Eretz Yisrael, they would ultimately enter into their promised eternal homeland. This repeats itself in Jewish history, where we are also on the way in Eretz Yisrael. All of the Jewish people, even those who are living in Eretz Yisrael, we are all journeying towards Geula, towards redemption. From the wilderness of exile, which has been going on for many, many years, since the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, till Geula, that's a journey through a long, big, frightening, and awesome wilderness. And from there we enter into the Promised Land. It's also true about our personal lives, not just collectively, but individually. Each of us has our own promised land. We have our collective promised land, but we also have our individual promised land. And the journey towards your promised land goes through a desert. It goes through wilderness. And that wilderness has all of these qualities that Moshe Rabbeinu describes, very descriptive, very precise, and very acute definitions of this wilderness. And he wants you to understand this. He wants us to understand this. Not just for the Jews of that generation. Of course, that too. But for the Jews of all generations. And the reason is because the moment you can identify the challenge, you can also conquer it. There's a famous expression, Yedias HaMachala, Chatsi Trufa. Knowing the illness is already half the healing, half of the recovery. Why? Because when somebody is ill, but they don't have a name for it, so then they have no. They're always at the. Def, they're at. They're. They're always on the defensive, because the illness creeps up here. It creeps up there, and they have no means to quarantine it, to put it in perspective, practically and emotionally. When I can identify the challenge and identify the problem, then I am already 
at the border of recovery because now I can identify what is the issue, what is the challenge, how do I treat it, how I don't treat it, what do I have to refrain from, what I don't have to refrain from, what are the greatest dangers at these moments, what will cause, God forbid, the illness to grow, and what I can do to minimize it or completely obliterate it. I'm talking, of course, about a type of illness where there is knowledge. In other words, once a person is aware of the illness, there's a, there's a plan for treatment. I heard a student of mine sharing some, uh, shared something very powerful. He said his whole life he suffered from depression and ADHD. Both severe, severe forms of both of them. And he is a smart fellow. Uh, handsome, good-looking, interesting person, kind person, a really good person, creative, smart, uh, courageous, lebedic, lively person. Really, really great kid. I remember him in yeshiva. He was a true asset, a, a light to the class, a light to the school. And uh, But he had this inner demons of depression that lurked inside of him, and ADHD. And they grew more serious and more serious to the point he got married. But with days on end, he simply could not get out of bed. And not because there was any tragedy that was, uh, that was crushing him, but it was just this inner sense of emptiness, the bottomless pit of depression, a void that simply drained him from all alacrity, enthusiasm, gusto, and passion. Now, he's a very passionate person. But when the depression took over, he had this blank stare and like a dead man walking and simply could not do anything. Nothing motivated him. Just complete depression. And he said something so powerful. He said, for all the years I was trying to avoid giving it names because I thought by naming it, by labeling it, What's going to happen is, I'm going to increase its power. I'm going to admit that I have it. And when I admit I have it, now I am really a victim. Now I'm really in bad shape. So I always said, you know, it's nothing. It's just some emotions, some problems, some challenges. And I thought that way, I will emancipate myself from it. He said, after some years, my life became so disastrous. It was so catastrophic. It was so detrimental for his marriage and his children. He said, I hit rock bottom and I realized I have to reinvent myself. He said, one of the great moments was when I named, I named my problem. I said, I suffer with this. It's just part of who I am. It's part of my journey in life. It's part of my condition. And you know what? My main focus and mission statement in life is to confront these stuff. That's it. That's my mission statement. It's not complicated. This is what I'm going to deal with. It's not going away so fast, hopefully one day, but now it's not going away. It's part of my situation. It's part of my journey. It's part of my reality. Accept it. Embrace it. Respect it. Know it. Be aware of it. And know that it's always there. And at any moment, it can spring up and take over my life. And therefore, my main goal in life is every single day to do whatever it takes to keep it quarantined, to keep it under control, to neutralize it, to make sure it does not spread its wings and take over my life. 
this is my liberation. My liberation is give it labels. Now, there is a truth to his initial thought. Sometimes there are situations that giving them labels is really running away from the truth. Because we want to, like sometimes psychiatrists or doctors like to label everything so we can provide a medication and that's it, we don't have to deal with it anymore. So sometimes labels really are an escape from taking the responsibility of really tuning into what the situation is. So that's why sometimes we have to stay away from labels, but only when it's really productive to the person's health and well-being. When I'm not giving things labels because I'm living little and more denial and I'm not ready to confront the situation, then labels are very important. Where do we see this? Right here in this Pasek. Moshe Rabbeinu gives labels to the desert. You know why? He wants you to be able to identify it. He wants you to identify each one of these sensations and emotions that I'm going to address in your life. Because the moment you know that this is what it is, you say, oh, of course, of course, this is what I'm dealing with. So the moment it comes into your brain, instead of it wreaking havoc, instead of it demoralizing you, destroying you, making you feel helpless, making you feel like an abused victim, making you feel like a loser schmata, valueless and insignificant, as we often talk about, instead, you could say, no, this is my journey. This is exactly what God wants me to confront. This is the desert that he took me through. And that's why Moshe goes to Midbar, Gadol, Noira, Nachash, Saraf, Akrav, Tzimoyen, Asha'en, Sham, Mayim. Each one is another description of the fears and the challenges and the toxicity we must face in life. And when you can identify the illness, you can, number one, realize, I do not want to be here. I do not want to be stuck here. And number two, this is what I have to deal with. And I figure out what I have to do in order to deal with it. And I do it on a daily basis. And then instead of it defining me, I define it. And from here, I can go into my promised land. Why? Because already in the desert, I'm on the way to to redemption because I identified it. The moment you identify the malady, you identify the challenge, and you're ready to take it on, you are already in the stages of healing and recovery. Even if you're not there yet, even if you didn't come to your promised land yet, you're already there because you identify the challenge, you know exactly what it is, and you know that if you do your daily work, you'll be good. What are the different stages? What is a desert? What are all these stages? Let's discuss it in our own personal life, individually, and then we'll see it collectively. We begin, the first thing is, the Midbar is described by the Navi Yirmiya, it's a very fascinating expression. He says, it's a place, Asher loy yashav adam sham. A place that is not uh, habituated, it's not suited for the residence of people. That's basically, we all remember that Pasek, the Navi tells us, how Hashem says, Zacharti lo chesed nuraich, avaz kluloi soich, lechteich acherai bamidbor be'eretz leizruch. God said, I'll always remember the grace of your youthfulness, the love, the early love when you followed me in a desert, in a land that's not sown. It's not planted. There's no fertility there. There's no fertility there, no water and no vegetation and no produce. Simply not a place, a resident for the human being. What does this represent psychologically and emotionally and spiritually? The word Adam, the Shalah says, doesn't only come from Adama, which means earth. But it's also Adam Elyon. Adam means you're an imitation of heaven. Doime, you know when you say you're doime, atad you're so similar. 
where we say lihidama is to imitate, to reflect. Adama, Adam is an Adama, I'm a reflection. That's what the word Adam means. I'm similar, I'm an imitation. Imitation of what? An imitation of God. What is a human being? A human being is an imitation of God in this world. If you want to say it sharply, I'll quote uh, Professor Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who once wrote, he was a very interesting character, he was a professor of mysticism in the seminary, the JTS, and he was a Hasidic skiing of great lineage, he was an anical of the Apta Ruver, of Rabbi Yeshua Heschel of Apta, and he knew about Hasidic, uh, he, knew, he knew about Judaism and spirituality, Kabbalists quite well, he wrote some brilliant works on the Kotzker Rebbe. He was a very interesting man. He died in 1972. He was a very close friend of my father, Olavar Shalom. Professor Heschel, Abram Joshua Heschel. I saw he once wrote. He's a very interesting person. They thought he himself would be a Rebbe. Uh, he was an orphan. He was in Warsaw. But then his his life took on a, a different... He, you know, he went a little bit on a different course. And... Um, and he ended up in New York. He taught, he taught Jewish mysticism in the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was part of the conservative movement. In any case, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, he wrote as follows. He says, when did God violate the commandment, do not make an image of God? When did God violate that commandment? And he, he said once, when he created the human being. Nasa Adam B'Tzalmenu Kidmuseinu. That's when he violated, so to speak. This is a dramatic way of saying Kivayachal, that he violated that commandment by creating the human being. Because the human being is the imprint of the divine. The human being is a reflection of Hashem. The human being is the imitation of Hashem in this world. Ne, the Pasuk says in Mishle, Neir Hashem Nishmas Adam. The soul of a human being is the Neir Hashem. It's, so to speak, the flame of God. Or as the Arizal would say, the soul is a Nitzutz Boire. It's a spark of the Creator that is enclosed in Nitzutz Nivra. So Adam says, the Shalor Rabbeinu Yeshaya Horowitz, 16th and 17th century great rabbi of Prague, Frankfurt, and Jerusalem, buried in Tveria, the Shalor says, Adam is Adam Elyeh. I reflect heaven, I mirror heaven. That is who I am. The Rambam says, one of the 613 mitzvahs is, to imitate God's ways. The Pesach says, follow Hashem's footsteps. So you don't follow Hashem, Hashem doesn't walk. Following Hashem's footsteps means that I can, I am capable. Who am I really? I'm a manifestation of Hashem in this world. I'm an imitation of God. In other words, a person has to know who he is. Midbar, is a place, Lo Yashav Adam Sham, the Navi says, Yirmiya says. It's not a place for Adam. What does it mean it's not a place for Adam? It's this colossal wilderness that is so powerful and so big that it's hard for me to be able to experience my own Adam. And what this means in a practical sense is that sometimes a person finds himself or herself confronted by the feeling that I am in this large wilderness in this colossal desert that is confusing, that is dark, that is infertile. There's no growth. There's no promotion of growth. There's no life of humanity on it. And on a psychological and an emotional, spiritual level, this is the time when the person feels you're lost. 
I'm confronted by fear, I'm confronted by uncertainty, by different forms of pain and paralysis, by stress and by anxiety. And I feel so, so small. I'm like, imagine somebody throws you into a desert, you're alone in the desert. What am I supposed to do here? There's no way I could succeed. There's no way I could survive. There's no way I could live. And it's huge. It's big. I'm so small in its presence. What is more, Moshe says, it's frightening. It's fearful. Not only do I feel small in its presence, I feel so tiny. But even that little, that little tiny self that I do have is overwhelmed by a sense of neira. I am startled. I am overwhelmed. I am full of fear. And therefore, a person very easily can forfeit their higher identity. So what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the Jewish people is, essentially you're an Adam. And what does it mean you're an Adam? An Adam means you are capable of reflecting the divine in this world. You're a reflection of divine wisdom, divine compassion, divine confidence, divine joy, divine eternity, and divine invincibility. And yet, I'm plunged into a desert, and here there's no space for Adam. And what happens here is, really the feeling that I lose my self-confidence. I lose my esteem. I really feel that I have no significance. I have no value. It's a big world. It's a frightening world. Do you ever experience that? Do you ever feel yourself to be so small, so mediocre, the sense of inner mediocrity? And it's such a big desert. And I'm just so small, so insignificant, so value, so valueless. I do not understand and appreciate my true inner core, my true inner divine value, because mentally I find myself in a desert. And not just a large desert. That's one problem. Neira. Neira means frightening. Frightening means even when I'm in my own room, sometimes socially I feel awkward and uncomfortable. I don't know who I am. So I run away to my house. I quarantine but sometimes that doesn't even help because the desert is so awesome and frightening that it catches up to me even in the privacy of my own house, my own bedroom. Even there I feel inadequate. Even there I don't appreciate my true inner divine value. What is next step, Moshe says? Nachash. It's a place of snakes. And then he says it's a place of sorrow, fiery snakes, serpents. And a place of akrov, a place of scorpions. What's this all about? We know when the brothers threw Yosef into the pit, it says the pit did not have water. So the Gemara says in Shabbos, Chafalov, Chavbez, there was no water there. But there were Nechashim and Akrabim there. There were snakes and there were scorpions. What's the difference between the snake, the Nachash, the Sarof, and the Akrof? Three different levels. Three different challenges in life. Nachash, says the Erke HaKinuyim, the author of Seder Adoy, Sebechil Halpun, as a Seder called Erke HaKinuyim, according to the Aleph base, and he says there's a big difference between the venom of a snake and the venom of a scorpion. The venom of a snake is Ersoy Cham, it's hot. And the venom of a scorpion, when a scorpion bites, and most scorpions, many scorpions are venomous, much more than snakes. Most snakes are not harmful to people. 
But most scorpions are very harmful to people because most of the bites of scorpions are venomous. And the venom of a scorpion is usually cold. Practically, the venom of a snake, the bite of a snake, often causes, tends to cause people's fever to rise. So now they have hot temperature, they feel hot. On the contrary, the bite of the scorpion, the venom, causes people's temperature to actually low, become lower to the point that they feel they have no heat. They feel frozen. So there's two very different experiences. The nachash is somebody who's gets, who experiences venom, experiences the bite of a snake, but it's hot. It's a venomous bite, but there's passion, there's heat. And this is the next step. The moment I lose my self-esteem, the moment I lose my inner core value, the moment I do not understand who I am, I'm not an Adam anymore. I'm not Adam Eliyah, I'm not a reflection of God in this world. There's a tremendous void in me. And now I allow myself and I subject myself to the venoms of snakes, snakes of all types. And they inject that venom which gives me heat, it gives me temperature, it creates substitute passions, addictions, exciting things in life, but they're taking me away from my own inner passion. It's like when somebody is very hot with high temperature, this passion, the body is full of heat, but this is a form of illness. It actually means we're battling the illness. So nachash is when there's venomous heat that is injected into me, there's a lot of passion in life. There's excitement. But you know what? It's poisonous. We all know that we can get passionate about things that ultimately are poisonous to us. People who are addicted. People who are bingers. People who are obsessed. People who have all types of crushes and appetites and cravings that want to satisfy me. And I feel excited about them and, and I'm drawn to them. But what is it? They're taking me away from my inner core. They're taking me away from the passions that will ultimately allow me to align myself with my truest self. Passions that will bring more life into me, more substance into me, more truth into me. Not passions that will become a distraction from who I am. There's stage B, saraf. There's a nachash who's a snake. And then there's a saraf. Saraf, from the word sreif, a fire. They are fiery serpents. The passion is so intense that it completely substitutes my authentic inner values. The passion that comes from my inner core divine self. And we know Nachash is the same numerology like Mashiach, right? Nachash is 358. Mashiach is 358. Why? Because the Nachash presents himself as the Messiah in my life. It's the substitute Messiah. It's the false Mashiach. Like with Adam and Chava, the Nachash comes and says, I will solve you from all your problems. God is afraid of competition. God is afraid that you're going to imitate him and you're going to create the world. That's why he doesn't want you to eat that tree. He wants to control you. He wants you to be robots and zombies. And I will be the one who will set you free. Little did they know that this Nachash, who was heralding the story of redemption, was really enslaving them more than anything else. Not only is God not scared if you imitate Him, you are an imitation of God. You are God. You are a reflection of the divine. The moment the snake pits God against the person, that's where the beginning of addiction is. 
The beginning of addiction is when we start believing that we're detached from the ultimate source of infinity, when we're unplugged from the source of electricity, when the electricity is not flowing through me. So this becomes like a false narrative, a false messiah. At a later stage, sorrow, the passions become so powerful, I become an addict. And when I become an addict, I don't even have space for other passions because I'm completely overwhelmed by these crushes and obsessions. Sometimes I have strong cravings towards passions that are not the most healthy, but you know what? They subside. Saraf means they burn me up completely. This nachash's venom now overtakes me completely. There's absolutely no space for anything else. Then there's a deeper danger. It's called a scorpion. The scorpion's poison is cold. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. At least when I'm passionate about something, I'm looking for life. I'm looking for distractions. I'm looking for something. And if I'm looking for something, maybe one day I'll realize that I'm looking in the wrong places and I will go back to find what I'm truly searching for. You know what the venom of the scorpion is? Coldness, indifference, apathy, emotional paralysis, depression of the worst type. I'm just not alive anymore. I'm not interested. I'm not looking. I'm not even frustrated because there's no passion. There's no heat. There's no life. The scorpion is much more dangerous than the snake. The snake has passion. It's venomous passion. That's true. But there's passion, there's life, there's warmth. The Erkei HaKinuyim says, Ersoi Cham, its poison is passionate, it's hot. The acre of the scorpion, Ersoi Cham, Ersoi Kar. Its poison is cold. That's why when you take the word akrov, akrov is spelled ayin, kuf, resh, bez. The middle letters, what's the middle letters? Kuf, resh. What's kuf, resh? Cold. Because when the akrov exudes and ejects, ejects and injects his venom, its venom into the person or the animal or the poor prey that the akrov uses. Akrov are very interesting animals, but that bite can be lethal. Thank God most humans are not on their appetite menu usually. I'm not on their menu. But uh, they know how to do their job. But they're interesting creatures, Akrov. You know that also they have tremendous surviving skills. An Akrov can live in extreme weathers and in very harsh climates. Some scorpions can live on one insect a year. And then they change their whole metabolism. And they're incredible because they survive. So Akrov, the middle letters is Kufresh, which is cold. That's what it does. It causes the temperature to drop, the person to become cold. Nachash, the middle letter is ches, which is cham, heat. Because the poison of the nachash is hot, and the poison of the acre of the venom of the acre of the scorpion is cold. The Gemara speaks in a few places. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, Shabbos, other places, Sanhedrin, other tractates about the coldness that's represented by the acre, by the scorpion. Of course, we have one of the zodiacs of the months, right? You have Tlesher, Tuomim, Sartan, Arye, Psula, Psula is Elul, Moiznayim, the scale is the zodiac of Tishrei, and then you have the beginning of winter, which is Cheshvan. So after Psula, Moiznayim, you have Akrov, you have the scorpion, that's associated with the month of Cheshvan, when many of you, when many Jews run to Miami. (laughs) That's when it starts getting cold. So that's also one of the associations with the scorpion because the zodiac, the constellation of the stars associated with Akrov. So what does this represent? This represents a coldness in life, just indifferent. You know, there's a warm person, a hot person, and a cold person. A hot person is passionate. Now, I may have a bad temper. My passion may be directed in the wrong places, which is bad. It's bad. A snake is dangerous. 
But there's passion. There's life. You want life. You're looking for warmth. You're looking for relationships. You need to have the right relationships. You need to have true relationships. You need to have relationships that will fill your soul and not just distract you from your pain and your voids and numb you. But Akrov numbs you in a different way. It just drains you of all energy. I don't need to live anymore. So it's like a person who's walking, but the person is really dead, depleted from all energy. That's the tragedy of Akrov, the tragedy of the scorpion. That's a deeper level in the desert. So you see what Moshe Rabbeinu is doing here? First he speaks about, there's a Midbar Haggadol. I'm lost in the wilderness, and I have no place here. I lose all my self-esteem. I lose all my self-confidence. I really don't know who I am anymore. And that's the danger of the Midbar. It's not just a big desert. In other words, it's a huge desert. And who am I? I'm just a little flimsy creature, less significant than an ant. A tiny drop, a random mutation, an infinitesimal blimp on the surface of infinity. I amount to nothing. Look around at the desert. Not only that, even in my own bedroom I feel valueless because it's noira. It strikes fear and dread into my heart. And then I'm suffering from the fear. So this is the type of fear that para, that really overwhelms a person and then there's the nachash, the bite, the venomous bite of passions that take you away from your real passion. Saraf, which burns you up completely and akrov, which creates paralysis. I was looking up this morning about uh, the difference of snakes and scorpions and I saw an interesting article by Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg in the website Gal Einai from Rabbi Yitzchak Ginsburg from Eretz Yisrael who's a well-known thinker and writer and author and Kabbalist and mathematician. And uh, he wrote something very interesting. He put it well. He said, when I have negative passions, I can sometimes escape them. Because if I find something wholesome to be passionate about, that's going to be very rewarding and fulfilling. And at least momentarily, it will take me away from the toxic passions. But he says, when I'm suffering from apathy and indifference, it's constant. Wherever I am in the world, whatever situation I'm in, whatever I distract myself with, it just injects its venom, the message of absolute indifference, apathy, and depression. And in a way, it's much worse than the snake. Now, here we come to a fascinating halacha. The Mishnah tells us in Tractate Brachas, page 31, If a person is davening Shemayin and a snake comes and wraps itself, entangles itself around a human heel. Now, we're, not, we're talking about a person who knows these snakes. They're not poisonous, they're not venomous, they're not lethal, and they're not coming to attack. They're not coming to attack, and it's not a bite. It's, the Nochesh is not coming to attack or bite. Obviously, if you don't know any of this, you've got to be careful. So the Mishnah says, Lo yafsik. You could walk away. That's not a problem. You could walk away and get, your, get rid of the snake. But I'm not allowed to interrupt my words in the middle of Shemineser and start talking to somebody and telling somebody, come, take away the snake or kill the snake. You could run away as fast as you want. It's not a problem. Again, we're not talking about where there's a danger of life and death or even a danger that he's going to bite you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, as Rashi says, 
this is a type of snake that doesn't bite a person. If the snake is coming to attack, of course you could do whatever you need. But if not, lo yafsik. If you want to walk away, you could walk away, but you should not interrupt your davening because davening is the most important thing. The Gemara says, a scorpion, yafsik. Then you have to run, talk to anybody, scream, let people kill it, whatever you have to do. Why? Because the scorpion tends to bite. And the scorpion tends to inject venom. Even though the venom won't be lethal, the akrov interrupts. You interrupt the hoshmenes, you do whatever you have to do for the akrov. What's the meaning of this spiritually? Davening represents our relationship with Hashem. Sometimes my relationship with Hashem is interrupted by a snake. And sometimes it's interrupted by a scorpion. If my relationship with Hashem is interrupted by a snake, I could continue davening. It does not interrupt my davening. Meaning... It's not a good thing that a snake is now entangling my heel, which means that there is venomous passion that was injected into me, whether it's jealousy, frustration, hate, anger, crushes, obsessions, addictions, ambitions that are not healthy, or any type of passion that is ultimately immoral and not aligned with my truest self. That's true, it's not good. But lo yafsik. Don't stop davening. You daven further. You know why? Because ultimately, if you maintain your connection to the divine, you will ultimately take this life and this passion and transform it. Because you're living, you're alive, you're vibrant. The problem is, you have fell prey to the wrong passions. But ultimately, you will discover your real passion and you will discover how to take all your energy and enthusiasm and harness it in the right way. However, if Akrav if a scorpion wraps itself around you, here the Gemara says, here Yafsik. Even if the coldness is not in your brain and in your heart, it's just in your heels, still you have to stop davening. Because if in the middle of davening you become so emotionally paralyzed and stagnated that nothing moves you, nothing moves you, nothing triggers you, nothing evokes you, now there's deadness. And this is the greatest danger for life. We would think the snake is more dangerous. No, at least there's passion. Here when there's coldness, this means that your whole system needs to be re, redesigned. You need a whole new lease on life. Yafsik. You need to interrupt this system of Avaidah Sashem. You need to have a whole new seder, a whole new derech in Avaidah. Because you need to learn how to be alive. We need passion. We need warmth. You need to connect yourself to Eitz Chayim Hila Machazekimba. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, the next stage in the danger in the desert is it's a place of scorpions, and then he goes further. A place of thirst where there's no water. What does this mean? Moshe says, sometimes you're lucky. You start being thirsty. Basically, God communicates some energy into your soul and it makes you feel discontent with your present situation and you're experiencing thirst. Like Chazal say that there's a baskel, 
a heavenly voice that comes out from Mount Chayrev every day to inspire the Jewish people. Asks the Baal Shem Tev, what does it help? Nobody hears it. You hear voices that come from mountains. And the Baal Shem Tev says, your mazel hears it. Your superconscious soul hears it. And sometimes it trickles down a message through your brain to your conscious self. And that's why in the middle of the day, we may experience a discontent, a thirst. I'm thirsting for something. That thirst may be coming from a very deep spiritual message that your superconscious forces have experienced. Moshe says, you're thirsty, but there's no water. What does it mean, you're thirsty, there's no water? The Gemara says about Bekamadaf Yudzayin, Ein Mayim Elatayr. Water is a metaphor for spiritual wisdom, for divine wisdom. Sometimes people are thirsty, but they do not know to what? I know I'm not happy. I know I'm empty. I know I'm missing something. I know something is bothering me. But I cannot figure out towards what. If you can figure out towards what you're thirsty, you're good. <laughs> you know why? Go get it. But when I don't know, when I don't have that clarity, I just know I don't feel good. I'm not happy. I'm miserable. I'm really thirsty for something. But I can never figure out what it is. In other words, what I'm really thirsty for is so distant from my imagination, I can't even identify the target. I just know that I'm miserable. I don't know anything. You say, why are you miserable? What's bothering you? What are you looking for? I don't know. I'm not in that place. That's what Moshe is describing. A person sometimes is thirsty in this colossal desert where I lost my identity and confidence and esteem, where I'm confronted by fear, stress, and anxiety. Where I am confronted by a snake and a scorpion and a fiery serpent. What happens now? The person experiences a thirst, a yearning. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know. He doesn't feel what he's thirsting for. He doesn't know what he's yearning for. Why? Because the venom of the snake and the venom of the scorpion distanced the person so much. It made the person so detached from truth, from holiness, from divine energy, that my imagination at this moment is not capable of absorbing this truth, what I'm thirsty for. I'm thirsty for the truth, but I can't even identify it, because to be, to know what you're thirsty for is already a tremendous step in life. But sometimes I don't know what I'm thirsty for. I just know that I'm miserable. What? I don't know. And therefore... I'll continue all types of meshagasim to satisfy myself, to fill my void in some way, but I will not be able to identify what I really need, which is always alignment with truth, alignment with my truest self, Adam, Adam, Elion, my infinity. You get all the stages. So it begins with a lack of self-esteem. I don't know who I am. I'm lost in a huge desert, and I'm just a little insignificant shmata. It continues with Neira. I am struck by fear. This fear, this anxiety, this stress. It's not like I have a little private cocoon where I'm safe and comfortable. You know, I'm not a social animal. Big deal. Go to your room. Be quarantined, right? People liked quarantine for that reason. They could get back their own energy. They don't have to go to bar mitzvahs every day. And chasanas and pidyana benz and brisin and socialize. Everything is Zoom. Yichud Zoom. I'm a chaya. But even in my own space, I'm full of fear. Doesn't help. I go to bed, but the anxiety doesn't stop. What's the next step? Nachash. I need substitutes. So I have now substitute passions, which obliterate 
and make me insensitive to the real passions that align me with infinity. Sorof, these passions can burn me up completely like a full-blown addict. Akrov, apathy, indifference, coldness, depression, death, emotional paralysis. And now, even when God, in His grace, sends me a message and I'm thirsty, there's no water. I can't identify what I'm looking for. I'm thirsty, but there's nothing else. This is the desert Moshe Rabbeinu wants you to know you are inside. Hamaylichacha, this is the desert through which the Rebbeinu Yishaloylam has led the Jewish people through as a preparation to come to Eretz Yisrael. It's the desert that each and every one of us, or I should say many of us, have to confront in our lives in order to get into Eretz Yisrael. That's not the problem. The problem is when you can't identify each step of it. When we can identify each one of these steps, the desert is already the prerequisite for redemption, for emancipation, because we can label it, we know exactly what it is, we know exactly what it does, and we know that this is our work. And it all begins from the words Midbar Hagadol. The moment you lose that inner value, that inner core, that inner awareness that you are invincible, that you are indestructible, that you are an ambassador of the divine in this world, an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom, infinity, redemption. The moment you forfeit that truth, you become incognizant of that truth that you have the confidence and the joy of Hashem in this world because you are a piece of Hashem, you're Adam, Adam, Le'elyon, the moment I lose that, it goes downhill. Then there's fear, anxiety, stress, passions, addictions, emotional stagnation and paralysis, and miserable without a solution. Those are the steps that Moshe Rabbeinu led us through, and he said, and I want you to know, God is the one who put you in this desert and is leading you the desert and can bring you the water from a flintstone. Because the moment you can identify this, you know, these are all challenges. These are all fears. These are all causes of anxiety and stress, but they are not me. I am traveling through the desert. I am not the desert. I'm on the way to Eretz Yisrael. My journey takes me through the desert, but I am not the desert. I am not my anxiety. I am not my stress. I am not my fear. I am not my depression. I am not my paralysis. I am not my sensations. I am not all of the thoughts that are racing through my brain telling me how inadequate I am. I am not my addictions. I am not my binging. I am not my cravings. And I am not even my apathy and indifference. These are all toxic forces in the desert, venomous, powerful forces that come into me, that want to inject me with them, but I am not them, and therefore I can observe them, I can label them, and I can know that my work is to confront each one of these states of mind and heart, subdue them, conquer them, sometimes transform them, or at least quarantine them and not let them define me. And then the desert itself becomes a preparation for Geula, for Eretz Yisrael. It becomes the journey towards Eretz Yisrael. Why? Because each and every one of these stages becomes a catalyst and a springboard for deeper awareness, for deeper truth, for deeper growth, for rejuvenation, for renaissance. It's true individually, it's true collectively with all of the Jewish people. 
the first danger of Golos, which is described as a midbar, a big wilderness, is the lack of Yiddish shtoltz. We lose our identity in Golos. We look at a big world and we say, who are we? We're just a little, little, tiny minority. The Jewish people are, what, 14 million people. We don't even constitute one quarter of 1% of the world. And so many people hate us, so many anti-Semites. But even without that, there's a huge world. And even among the Jewish people, there's such a small minority of Jews who really appreciate and in a revealed conscious way on a daily basis are living the life of Torah and the life of mitzvahs. So many Jews, unfortunately, don't appreciate and don't identify themselves with the rich wellsprings and the infinity of Judaism. And it's so easy to feel embarrassed and ashamed and I'm a minority. And not only that, it sometimes looks like an awesome and a scary desert. It's like almost scary to be a real Jew. So people are embarrassed, they're ashamed, even if they'll do it in their own homes and their little shtibel. But to be able to be and profess that inner humble Jewish pride and dignity in the world, to be able to communicate Judaism to the world, to the masses, to be able to realize our job is to transform the landscape of planet Earth. What are you talking about? I'm on the defensive. I'm always on a defense. The world is a scary, big, horrible place. Just run away and hide. And even there, sometimes we feel the inner sense of inadequacy. It's one of the greatest challenges of the Jewish people, a sense of inferiority, an inferiority complex, and the need to out-Gentile the Gentiles. Or as Gritcho Marx said, I would never be a member of a club that would have me as a member. Or as somebody once said, the mission statement of the modern Jew is incognito ergo sum. I am incognito, I'm invisible, and therefore I exist. I think, therefore I am. Descartes, I'm incognito and therefore I am. It often became the message of the Jewish, the inner message of the Jewish people that anti-Semitism translates into self-hate and self-loathing. What's missing is the awareness of You have chosen us from among the nations. You have loved us. You desired us. You elevated us from all the tongues and you sanctified us. You brought us to your name and to your service and your infinity you conferred upon us. When a Jew realizes that this is not about ego, if it's about ego, then you miss the plot. But you are a conduit for greatness. You're the divine messenger to change the world. What are you embarrassed with? The whole world is looking to you. Even the anti-Semites, they're obsessed with Jews because they feel the spiritual power of the Jewish people, consciously or unconsciously. What are you embarrassed? And the more you hide, the more you run, you don't solve the problem because they feel the infinity of the Jew. Embrace your destiny. Embrace your energy. You're a moral teacher of yourself, of your environment, of the world. Your God sent you to change the world. Yeshaya says, a light unto the nations. Why you ashamed? That's the beginning of the downfall. That sense of inadequacy and that sense of inferiority and that inner fear. I'm so small. And that leads then to the venom of the snake where we substitute our real passions for fake passions. And we sometimes become so apathetic and different. And then where we become thirsty as a people, but we don't even know to what. People are searching, 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 searching. The youth is searching. Jews from all stripes and backgrounds. They run here, they run there, they run everywhere. They don't know what they're searching for. But we can identify each stage of this colossal, scary desert. And we could see exactly what it is. 
Moshe Rabbeinu says, you're good. Become aware of the illness so you could be on the road to recovery. When we can identify this and we could realize that it all begins with feeling that I'm, I am in a colossal desert. I lose my internal individual pride and our collective inner humble divine dignity as Jews. We forget the atavichartonu mikola amen. You have chosen us. The Chidush Yarim once said, what's Vireimamtanu Mikola Al-Shainis? He elevated us among other all languages. He said, there's no language in the world that can describe the infinite love of Hashem to the Jew. There's no language. Mikola Al-Shainis. There's no Shprach. Nishtakin Shprach. Nishtakin Verte. There's no quill or pen that can put on paper and articulate in words or sentences, even in poetry, or prose. The Pchira, the Atavachartana Mikolamim, the Haftai Sonu. When we can identify that and live that and breathe that, now we escape the clutches of the colossal desert and we're on our way from Golos into Geula, into Eretz Toivor Chava, the good and broad land, with the Geula through Mashiach Tzitkenu, Bimheira Biyamenu, speedily in our days. Amen. Thank you very much. Take some questions. How does one overcome the hatred that has been buried deep inside and purposely ignored because of how much the memories hurt? This is part of what we have to discover. You have to always remember that nobody can destroy you at your core. Your core is divine. The problem is that the memories and the experiences themselves are hurtful, very hurtful. Even equally hurtful or even more is what you did with them. Meaning, somebody can say something very nasty to me or do something very nasty to me. That's their choice. But then I internalize it and it becomes a trauma that sometimes sits in my body and literally obstructs my energy. It literally robs me from my inner creativity and passion. This is already not about them. It's how I internalize it. Now, especially when we were children, we don't have a choice. And by sometimes removing it into our trauma of our body, we survive because we allow ourselves just to move on in life using these surviving survival skills. We have to close up certain parts so that we don't get hurt again. But as in the adults... We have to identify this is part of our colossal and fearful desert that we're in. It's part of our paralysis and indifference and apathy because of the pain. And you have to allow your body to release the trauma. You have to daven to Hashem and say, I'm fine. Help the body release the trauma. You have to be able to sob and grieve and really extricate that trauma that sits in your body and really is paralyzing. It's not letting you feel It's not letting you love fully. It's not letting you be a free person. You can't reflect God in this world. And it's all distractions. And it's not really you. Nobody can destroy you. I promise you, you're a chelik, but you have to let it go. Maybe professional help can be effective sometimes. There's certain forms of therapy today that they use that can help people release trauma. You can discuss it with an expert, but only a top expert, somebody who does this for many years and somebody who understands your situation, and if they're not helping you, move on. Don't sit there for years, because they may help you in 30 years. 
after a few sessions, you want to immediately see at least some results. Not, I don't mean complete transformation, but some results. And when this becomes your trajectory, you will become amazing. Don't worry about it. Great question, great question. This is what a lot of people are dealing with today. There's a lot of toxicity that has emerged, and, uh, and this message is extremely important for all of us. Let's go to the next question. God helps those who help themselves. This is something that I have believed all my life, and yet I think maybe the focus on those who help themselves has always outweighed the God helps part. I'm looking at it differently now. What do you think? Listen, God wants us to do our part as his partners. He wants us to be the co-authors of creation. There's no question. But everything we have is Hashem's energy. We are essentially the manifestation of Hashem in this world. So the partnership with Hashem is part of our creativity because our very creativity is also an expression of the divine. We have to stop putting the two ideas as, um, as see them, stop seeing them as contrasting each other. My daughter is feeling really anxious about socializing. Her friends make fun of her because of her extreme sensitivity and caution when it comes to social distancing. What would the rabbi tell her? I'm not sure if you mean it's because of the coronavirus or it's just a general mental state. If it's due to the coronavirus... It's important to consult top medical experts who have proven to be knowledgeable in this area and not affected by any politics in one way or another and really get their advice about how, you know, how you should be able to create boundaries that are healthy. If it's a general mental situation of social anxiety, meaning it's an inner emotional challenge, so then that's a whole other story. But generally speaking, social anxiety is very common. I think most of us have it to some degree. Some people, it's more exaggerated, and some people know how to hide it more. But social anxiety is really a, a, it's, it's a, it's, it can be a very deep condition, and it's important to identify it and watch it and not become enslaved to it. One way of dealing with it, I don't know if this applies to your daughter or not, but one, one way that I have seen that, that is often helpful is let's say you're going to an event. It's a social event, and some people are very anxious. You know, we don't realize this. You come to a l'chaim or a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a kiddush, and this, you know, people are going in, and they're smiling, but really some of them are suffering inside. They have to smile because they don't want to be perceived as nerds, but they're suffering. And one way of dealing with it is observing it. Like, watch that anxiety. Watch what your brain is doing as you're walking in. Like, your brain is basically telling you you go into a lion's den, it's horrible. You tighten up, you become anxious. And if you can look at it and distance yourself from it and quarantine it and say, okay, yeah, this is part of my desert. This is part of my journey. I got to go through these thoughts. But it's not me. I'm fine. I'm divine. I'm wholesome. Adam Adam Elyon. I know it may not solve the whole problem and you won't go in there, you know, as this free, uninhibited bird. But nonetheless, I think that it can sometimes be extremely, extremely effective. Extremely effective. In fact, I've done it myself in situations where I was experiencing social anxiety. And I'm not going to tell you that it was, uh, you know, it eliminated every challenge and problem. But it was extremely effective and helpful. But there are also other methods. So sometimes you may want to discuss it with a real professional or sometimes with a good friend, a confidant. But there's a lot of material on this. And if we're aware of it, that's the key. When you're aware that I have this challenge, 
Now I could identify, start looking, where's the trauma coming from? Where does it sit? Can I look at it? Can I let it, can I let it, can I let it go? Will I survive if I let it go? And you can really work on letting it go and live a much happier life. In terms of social distancing, if she's following the medical needs, if you're living with somebody older in the house or whatever, then I don't see what's to be embarrassed. You should tell her friends, I care about people's lives. And forgive me, but I really have to be, I have to be, you know, careful. Maybe she could, she could lower some of the standards of social distancing, but it should be done with wise decision and from a place of empowerment, not from a place of weakness. I don't understand exactly why her friends are making fun of her. What's there to make fun of? That somebody is trying to be cautious about her health? It seems strange that they're making fun of her, and I don't think she should feel bad that they're making fun of her. They should feel bad. What are they making fun of? That somebody doesn't want the pandemic to spread and other people, chas v'shalom, shouldn't become sick? What's there to make fun of? I really don't understand that. I mean, if somebody is sick and somebody takes them to the doctor, we're going to make fun of them because they're taking it seriously. It's people who died, a lot of people are sick. So what's there to make fun of? That I'm, I'm just not understanding. What's there to make fun of? And why is she being intimidated by their mockery? They should be, they should be embarrassed. That's what I'm not getting. And I think you should explain this to her. Do you really believe that there could be a situation that somebody is thirsty and they don't know what they're thirsty for? They don't know why they're thirsty. They don't know the reasons. I think that we always know. Deep down inside we know. But we may be afraid to tell that to ourselves. We may be afraid to search for it. Maybe the person doesn't want to put their energy towards figuring it out. Or maybe there's other reasons. But I think deep, deep down we know. Yes, you may be 100% right, and that's the point. The point is, maybe deep down I know, but I'm afraid to tell it to myself. I'm afraid to articulate it consciously. And that means that ultimately I tell myself that I don't know. Maybe I don't have the stamina to search for what it is. Maybe I tell myself that I don't know. Maybe I'm too afraid to know the answers. That couldn't, all, that's all included in Moshe's words. I'm thirsty, but I don't have the water here. What does it mean I don't have the water? I may not know that I'm searching for water. So even if there's water, I'm not going to drink it. Number two, I may know I'm searching for water, but I don't think it's available to me. Number three, I'm afraid to tell myself that this is the solution. Or whatever else, so, so whatever other reasons can be. But the bottom line is, I'm not going to the water. I am really not going to the water. Sometimes there's a situation where people don't want to hear the answer. You know why? They created a whole romantic world out of their pain. Sometimes I'm invested in being in pain. I want to be miserable. And I don't want you to take that away from me. It's a way of codependence maybe, or being a victim, or blaming society, or feeling good about myself. Maybe I feel needed. (laughs) I feel needed and somehow I make a contribution to the world by complaining about it, by saying how negative I am. That's also a contribution, you know. That's what I contribute to the world, being the source of misery, being the source of guilt for me and others. So there's so many different motivations. The bottom line is, there's no water. There's no water. I'm not drinking the water and I remain thirsty. I remain miserable. I remain empty and there's no water. It's a very, very, very powerful, very powerful idea. Next question. What's the source of all these stages that you discuss psychologically and emotionally, spiritually in this Pasuk? This, this, this idea was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe on Arafabrengen, Shabbos Parshas Ekev, Tovshin Tezayin. 
That's August 1956. Uh, it's published in Lakute Siches, Chelek Beis, Parshas Ekev, and, uh, and Rishimus, Chaverizayin, and some other sources. And the main idea the Rebbe was addressing then is the Jewish people collectively. How when we can identify Golos, we can be on the path to Gula. When we identify what Golos is, and its tragedies, and its, its toxicity, then we want to leave it, we know how to leave it, and we're already on the way to Gula. Beautiful questions, everybody. Let me look at the chat if there's any other questions. Okay. Sometimes people gain tremendous pleasure from being a victim. This is their default setting, and they really don't want to leave, leave that. I think that's true. I think sometimes we have a deep fear of being free and independent, because when I'm free and independent, I have nobody to blame. If I'm a victim, I have everybody to blame. If the ball is in my court, who do I blame? And by the way, it's not always conscious. It could be subconscious. Subconscious, sometimes, subconsciously, I I say, no, I, want, I don't want to be a victim. I'm independent. But ultimately, my wife can tell me something, or my child can tell me something, or somebody else can tell me something. And it triggers so many deep forces and responses that are all coming from victimhood. It's all coming from enslaving stories that I've been telling myself for many years. And it continues. When I, when I can stop that, when I can label it, I don't have to get rid of it, just label it. Just say, this is the desert striking fear into you. These are the snakes, these are scorpions, these are the serpents. That's what's happening. You are here living through a narrative that your thoughts are telling you, that you're a victim, and this comment is triggering you so deeply because it's fitting, fitting into that narrative. Maybe observe it, and maybe let's think about it differently. Maybe these words don't have the connotation that your victimhood story tells you they had. And you know what? You could respond from a completely broader space, from a much more expansive space. The moment you labeled the problem, you stop being defined by it. Because when you don't label it, it's everywhere, and it's everything, and it's true, because there's no label for it, so it's part of who I am. It's never questioned. The moment you label it, it can be questioned. It doesn't have to be worshipped. It has its space. It has its place in your life. But it's not everything. It has a label. The label is trauma. The label is fear, anxiety, stress that's coming from a particular situation, a particular circumstances. It doesn't reflect my innate self. I don't have to define myself by it. Next question. How, do you, how have you seen God turn around the lives of those bitten by scorpions? Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't talk about that. He just speaks about the fact that this was a place of scorpions and it was, it's easy to get affected by them and yet the Jews managed to traverse this desert. We do have the story in Chukas where the Jewish people were bitten by snakes and by Srofim and Moshe then built the pole and he healed them. We don't have a specific story about scorpions in the Chumash that I recall. Everybody have a beautiful day an inspiring day, and a very meaningful and uplifting and expansive week. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.